scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite. We signed a climate convention on the importance of economic instruments and free markets were included in this mammoth uh, Agenda 21 document and the Rio Declaration. Now, let me be clear on one fundamental point. Uh, the United States fully intends to be the world's preeminent leader in protecting the global environment. Coming up, Technocracy News. And welcome to Technocracy News and Trends. Today is February 25, 2020. One day late this week because of a little bit of a virus myself. Not the coronavirus, however. Just probably a regular virus. But we're going to talk about the coronavirus first today because it's on everybody's mind all over the world. The story I'm dealing with here is called China's Technocracy Leads to, quote, Digital Caste System that C-A-S-T-E, with coronavirus. And this is exactly what's happening. It's the haves and the have-nots. It's the control over people using technology. I wrote at the top of this article, China's technocracy failed to keep coronavirus in the laboratory, but now throws more technology at the problem now that it is at epidemic levels, namely surveillance plus AI to automate and herd individual quarantine. This article states the Chinese government is using the massive amount of data it has collected to categorize people according to their likelihood of infection by the new coronavirus. Notice it says likelihood of infection. But some people say they have been incorrectly tagged and forced into quarantine. On Valentine's Day, a 36-year-old lawyer in eastern China discovered that he had been coded red. The lawyer, Matt Ma, was effectively put in chains. The color displayed in a payment app on his smartphone indicated that he needed to be quarantined at home even though he was not sick. Without a green light from the system, he could not travel from his home village to the eastern city of Hangzhou or make it past the checkpoints that have sprung up across the country as a measure to contain the new coronavirus. Ma is one of the millions of people whose movements are being choreographed by the government through software that feeds on troves of data and spits out orders that effectively dictate whether you must stay in or can go to work. Their experience represents a slice of China's desperate attempt to stop a devastating contagion using a mixed bag of cutting-edge technologies and the old-fashioned surveillance. It was also a rare real-world test of the use of technology at a large scale to halt the spread of communicable diseases. And I might add, they haven't stopped it anyway. But nevertheless, when the red light shows up on your payment app, you're flat out of luck. You can't travel. And you can't change it either. The article continues, quote, This kind of massive use of technology is unprecedented, said Christus Linteris, a medical anthropologist at the University of St. Andrews who has studied epidemics in China. But Hangzhou's experiment has also revealed the pitfalls of applying opaque formulas on a large population. In the city's case, there are reports of people being marked incorrectly, falling victim to an algorithm that is, by the government's own admission, not perfect. 
The rating system that snagged Ma is known as Health Code and can be accessed through the Alipay payment app. It was developed by Ant Financial, an affiliate of e-commerce giant Alibaba and local authorities of Hangzhou, home to many of China's biggest tech companies. It was launched last week as millions of Chinese people began returning to work after a Lunar New Year holiday that was extended by the coronavirus epidemic. The color code is a result of automated analysis that uses what Chinese officials have called big data to identify potential carriers of the coronavirus as the country gets back to work. Chinese official state media has reported that the system covers three provinces, and a list of three provinces here, and the municipality of Chongqing, with a total population of nearly 180 million, and will soon cover the entire country. So they're rolling this system out nationwide. All 1.4 billion people will come out of the system. And if you're walking along and all of a sudden your smartphone turns up a red badge for you, you must simply go home and wait there because you won't be traveling and you won't be going back to work. This type of ubiquitous surveillance and control of people is where technocracy is headed all around the world. It shouldn't take a catastrophe like this to point out to people how dangerous this type of draconian control is, but here it is, and stories are just starting to filter out of China about how people have been misused and mishandled. Many people have gotten sick, actually, because of these type of antics. We'll never know how many and what the cost was to the people of China. But now that it's spreading to the world, other countries are dealing with exactly the same thing. And some of the other side benefits that will come out of this for the global elite will be millions, if not billions, of dollars made on new vaccines that most likely will be mandated by the respective governments. That means they will stick a needle in your arm whether you want it or not, whether you're healthy or not. doesn't make any difference. If the government says you're going to get the vaccine, you're going to get the vaccine. The next story of interest here is titled, Technocracy is Coming for Your Steak, Burgers, Ribs, Milk, and Cheese. This is not a cheesy story either. I wrote at the top of this, do you like your beef? Well, you can't keep your beef if global warming-soaked technocrats get their way. Cattle and ranching are declared unsustainable, and technocrats intend to decimate ranchers everywhere. And yes, there is an orchestrated battle against ranchers in America and in other countries of the world as well, but especially in America. My friend Tom DeWeese wrote this article, and it was so good I posted it. He's the founder and director of American Policy Center in Virginia. He states, for the past year, I have been working to sound the alarm that the American beef industry is under massive assault from the radical environmental and animal rights movements that seek its ultimate destruction. And when he says destruction, he means total destruction. It continues, throughout the year, I have been addressing cattlemen's groups to educate them on the facts I have learned over nearly 30 years of exposing these groups and their plans to transform our entire culture and economy through the enforcement of the policy called sustainable development. Readers of Technocracy News know that sustainable development is equivalent to technocracy. It's a resource-based economic system where they control all the resources and all the development. The article continues, in the rural areas, the green-selected tactic is to control the land, water, energy, and population of the earth. To achieve these ends requires, among other things, the destruction of private property rights 
and the elimination of every individual's ability to make personal lifestyle choices, including personal diet. That's why the American beef industry is such a necessary target. First, they had to create a false crisis so everyone would feel the need to take immediate action. Their tactic was to declare that beef was not sustainable, not as a product to grow, and not as a healthy food for people to consume. This put the cattlemen in the middle of a pincer move between the radical environmental movement seeking control of land use and the animal rights movement, which demanded the end of the consumption of animals. Their most effective tactics is the never-ending threat of global warming. Say the Greens, global warming is driven by energy consumption and cows are energy guzzlers. That's because you need trucks to ship the cattle to market. In their vision of a perfect, sustainable community, nothing would be shipped in to consume. Everything needed would be produced right in the city. The Soviet Union called those gulags, by the way, and they starved. So these are some of the reasons why it's charged that beef is unsustainable and must be ruled, regulated, and frankly, eliminated. There are charges brought by anti-beef vegans who want all beef consumption stopped, and cahoots, the environmentalists who seek to stop the private ownership and use of land under the excuse of environmental protection. Incredibly, to help deliver the cattle industry into line with this worldview, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, NCBA, has accepted the imposition of the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, which is heavily funded, if not controlled, by the World Wildlife Fund, one of the top three most powerful environmental organizations in the world and a leader of the United Nations Environmental Program. That's UNEP, U-N-E-P, which basically sets the rules for global environmental policy. Well, it's a small world, isn't it? This is the same World Wildlife Fund that has openly staged its opposition to beef production. They insist that to, quote, save the earth, it is demanded that we change human consumption habits away from beef. Keep in mind that the WWF is working diligently with environmental groups to gain control of the northern Great Plains, which spans more than 180 million acres across five states and into Canada. Under the false flag of wildlife restoration and conservation, the true purpose is to remove domestic livestock from the grasslands. When you submit to powerful forces like the WWF, that's the World Wildlife Federation, which has a specific political agenda for your future, you're actually giving them the keys to public lands and your private property. Put another way, what if it was the law that you had to have the approval of your competition to start a new business? That's the reality of dealing with the WWF and its roundtable. Sustainable means a one-size-fits-all straitjacket that destroys individual creativity and thought. It's the death of innovation, progress, and the very roots of free enterprise. This article is one that I recommend you read in full and digest exactly what it's saying. Sustainable development is not just about beef, but this is a perfect example of how the environmental radicals of the world are working to completely upend society. And don't think they can't do it. They've already driven out of business hundreds of ranchers and small farmers, family farms around America, and they want all of them, not just a few. They think they can completely reform agriculture throughout the world. If they are successful, they will cause the biggest mass starvation event 
in the history of the world. They're very dangerous, and they need to be resisted and rejected at every conceivable turn. The next story is titled, The Digital Mentality of the European Union's Green New Deal. And yes, the EU is just hot and bothered over their own Green New Deal that they want to implement throughout Europe. It's also interesting as a side note, now that Britain has exited from the EU, that the Prime Minister of Great Britain, that would be Boris Johnson, affectionately known as Bojo to his constituents, he now has identified himself as being super green, not just a little green, super green. He wants to turn England upside down the same way the EU wants to turn the EU upside down. I would ask, what the heck was Brexit all about for Pete's sake? You got away from one to jump into another? That's like going from the frying pan right into the fire. Well, I wrote at the top of this article, this article by the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, reveals that their Green New Deal essentially relies on tech optimism. That is, betting on future technology not yet invented or discovered to achieve their goals. Now, you have to understand how dangerous this type of thinking is. Nobody but nobody can predict the future. And yet, these people think that they can. Well, maybe they really aren't predicting the future, but they're hoping for a future where things will exist that do not exist today and that those newly invented things somewhere out in the future will bail them out of their crazy crackpot schemes that they've hatched today. So this is what the head of the EU stated in her presentation. I am a tech optimist. My belief in technology as a force for good comes from my experience as a medical student. I learned and saw firsthand its ability to change fates, save lives, and make mundane what once would have been a miracle. We now take for granted that we can take an antibiotic when we have an infection or go for an x-ray or an MRI scan when we get injured or sick. These are all miracles that have changed the course of humanity for the better. Thanks to technology, these miracles are becoming more breathtaking and more regular by the day. In other words, new things are being invented, of course. They are helping to better detect cancer, support high-precision surgery, or tailor treatment for the needs of each patient. This is all happening right now, right here in Europe. But I want this to only be the start, and I want it to become the norm right across our society, from farming to finance, from culture to construction, from fighting climate change to combating terrorism. This is the vision behind the new digital strategy that the European Commission will present this week. We believe that the digital transformation can power our economies and help us find European solutions to global challenges. We believe citizens should be empowered to make better decisions based on insights gleaned from non-personal data. And we want that data to be available to all, whether public or private, big or small, startup or giant. This will help society as a whole to get the most out of innovation and competition and ensure that we all benefit from a digital dividend. This digital Europe should reflect the best of Europe, open, fair, diverse, democratic, and confident. The breadth of our strategy reveals the scale and nature of the transition ahead of us. It covers everything from cybersecurity to critical infrastructures, digital education to skills, democracy to media, and it lives up to the ambition 
of the European Green Deal. For instance, by promoting the climate neutrality of data centers by 2030. But as we will set out this week, the digital transformation cannot be left to chance. We must ensure that our rights, privacy, and protection are the same online as they are off it. That we each can have control over our own lives and over what happens to our personal information. That we can trust technology with what we say and do. That new tech does not come with new values. I fully understand that, she says. For many, technology, and especially those who own it, have not yet earned that trust. And I dare say, as a side note myself, they never will. She continues, I see how that can break down when big online platforms use their customers' data in ways they shouldn't. Or when disinformation drives out responsible journalism and clickbait matters more than the truth. So I get and respect why some people are tech skeptics, doubters, and even pessimists. And this is why I believe we need a digital transition, which is European by design and nature, one that rebuilds trust where it is eroded and strengthens it where it exists. As part of this, big commerce digital players must accept their responsibility, including by letting Europeans access the data they collect. Europe's digital transition is not about the profits of a few, but the insights and opportunities of the many. This may also require legislation where appropriate. Now, this speech goes on and details more and more of what she thinks it'll take to get to that point, to achieve tech sovereignty, she calls it. Well, that technology doesn't exist yet. She says, well, we'll wait. We'll be patient. We're optimists, you know. We say this is what we want, and then we'll just wait for the technology to catch up and give it to us. My opinion of this is wishful thinking. You can't just think of something and all of a sudden it appears. It doesn't happen that way. And in any case, the people they're relying on to create this new technology are the very same ones that are abusing it today. Why would that turn out any different? Well, we know that Europe on its present trajectory is spinning out of control. In so many ways, technocracy is taking over and they're finding out that technocracy and everything else will not coexist in the same space. It simply won't. Everywhere that technocracy creeps in, destruction and decay also creep in, and things begin to spin out of control. We see the very same thing happening in Canada right now, where people are saying that recent actions by the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is pushing Canada's economy right off the cliff. And yes, it is, but he is a technocrat. You have to understand that. He's pushing technocracy, hook, line, and sinker to the entire country. He's spreading it everywhere. And everywhere it takes root, it produces economic decay and destruction. Europe is headed down the same path. So is Great Britain. So is the United States, I might add. In early stages we are, but we're in big trouble. We're doing the same thing here in America. The last story is unquestionably the most important story of this week, and it deals with UNESCO. The title of the story is UNESCO, Climate Denial to be Criminalized and Prosecuted. You heard me right. Climate deniers, or climate skeptics, as you might better call them, are to be criminalized and prosecuted in international court. I wrote an extended comment at the top of this article. The technocrat tango is shifting into high gear to force the world to dump capitalism and free enterprise and adopt sustainable development in its place. Global warming deniers, that's their term. 
let's use the word skeptic instead. Global warming skeptics would face penalties comparable to war crimes when climate alarmist Al Gore said in 2015 that, quote, deniers deserve to be punished, close quote, everybody chuckled. Well, chuckle no more. Under this proposal, in this article that is, President Trump could be prosecuted for withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. Leaders of conservative think tanks and other activist organizations that question climate science would be included. Widely read journalists who influence the public to question phony climate science would be individually prosecuted. And that would ostensibly, by the way, include technocracy news and trends editor and publisher Patrick Wood. That's me. This proposal is pointedly directed at the United States. But I can also see Australia and Brazil in the crosshairs as well. Technocrats know that their plan for global technocracy will not work until the U.S. is neutralized, which is why we are under a full-spectrum attack by climate fanatics. This is a deadly serious matter that should immediately be rejected by world and national leaders. Readers are urged to read my books, by the way, and I'll say it again on air, Technocracy, the Hard Road to World Order, and Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. You can find those books on technocracy.news, its website. You can also find them on amazon.com. Just type in the search box, technocracy, and you'll find them right at the top of the list. I continue, note that the article below on the official UNESCO website, but the author is not writing as an employee of UNESCO. A tiny disclaimer link in the footer of the UNESCO page states, quote, UNESCO does not warrant that the information, documents, and materials contained in its website is complete and correct and shall not be liable whatsoever for any damages incurred as a result of its use. So if too much pressure comes against this particular professor that wrote this article, why UNESCO can just back away and say, hey, we don't endorse every person that writes a story on our website. Well, I got news for them. Yes, they do. UNESCO doesn't publish anything. It doesn't further its own objectives. And this article was written by a professor. And here's what she says. Climate denial has increased the risk of catastrophic global change. Should international criminal law be used against those who promote this dangerous trend? Economic and political leaders can no longer pretend it is business as usual, whether they actively induce environmental harm or just ignore the existential threat against the survival of the human species, states and corporations must be held accountable for their actions or inaction regarding climate change. So she's setting the stage here for action or inaction. If you create an overt action, you could be prosecuted for that. If you don't do a certain action that they deem is appropriate, you could also be prosecuted as a criminal. She continues, a fire has started in the theater from which there are no exits. Unchecked, the fire will kill and injure many in the theater, starting with those in the cheapest seats. Many people can smell the smoke, but some others have not noticed it yet. Some people are trying to warn everyone so that the fire can be contained before it spreads out of control. Another group sitting mainly in the most expensive seats is trying to shout loudly that there is no fire or that it is not serious or that there is plenty of time left to put it out. This group uses emotive language 
and insist that the other group is not to be trusted. Many people in the theater are confused by these conflicting messages or convinced by the fire deniers. There are enough people in this combined set to significantly slow down the efforts of those listening to the accurate warnings, those who are trying to put out the fire. In this scenario, the shouting, no fire, ought to be silenced because there is a fire that requires urgent and immediate action to, to prevent it from spreading and becoming uncontrollable. But the fire is not being tackled properly because many of the people in the theater do not know whom to believe. Can we compare those who deny the reality of climate change to the group that occupies the best seats in the theater? She says, the answer seems obviously yes. I say, and I expect you would say, the answer is obviously no. This is an insane example of what she's trying to make a case for. She continues, criminal sanctions are the most potent tools we have to mark out conduct that lies beyond all limits of toleration. That is, all limits of her toleration. She continues, criminal conduct violates basic rights and destroys human security. We reserve the hard treatment of punishment for conduct that damages the things we hold most fundamentally valuable. Climate change is causing precisely such damage. Over the last 250 years or so, we have burned fossil fuels for cheap energy, destroyed carbon sinks, grown the global population, and failed to halt the malign influence of corporate interests on political action that could have made mitigation manageable. Now, we have a window of just 10 years or less to avoid using the carbon budget for 1.5 degrees, according to the 2018 special report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. If we continue on our current trajectory of emissions without aggressive mitigation, we could see warming in the range of 4 degrees to 6.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial averages by 2100. Even if all countries meet their current mitigation targets under the Paris Agreement, 2015 that is, that's COP21, by the way, or Council of the Parties, we are likely to see warming of at least 2.6 degrees by 2100. A 4 to 6.1 degrees Celsius rise in temperature by 2100 would be catastrophic. Large areas of the Earth would become uninhabitable as the sea levels rise and temperatures soar. Severe weather events, crop failure, and conflict in the face of mass migration never before seen in human history would place intense pressure on remaining habitable spaces. In these fragile and verbal conditions, positive feedback from warming could put humanity at risk of extinction, according to the journal Futures in September 2018. This feedback occurs when tipping points are passed in the climate system, causing processes to be unleashed that exacerbate warming. For example, the transformation of the Amazon forest from the world's largest carbon sink to a carbon source or the massive retreat of the polar ice, which reduces the planet's reflectivity, leading it to warm at a greater speed. These tipping points are described in the IPCC's fifth assessment report as a critical threshold at which global or regional climate changes from a stable state to another stable state. Should we use criminal law to tackle climate change? The current generation of people alive in the Anthropocene is capable of damaging and degrading the environment in ways that could make humanity go extinct. Postericide is a morally required response to humanity's changed circumstances 
in the Anthropocene. The scope of international criminal law makes it the right site to address these existential threats created by climate change. International criminal law aims to protect the entire human community irrespective of national borders now and into the future. International criminal law expresses the values that bind the human community together across time. It asserts that the condemnation of, quote, unimaginable atrocities that deeply shock the conscience of humanity, close quote, as stipulated in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court of 17 July 1998, which defines inter alia the international crimes over which the ICC has jurisdiction. For there to be a crime, there must be a criminal. The death and suffering caused by climate impacts is deeply shocking, but this is not enough to prompt prosecution under international criminal law. Death and suffering are caused by volcanic eruptions, yet there are no culpable agents in these cases. The current climate crisis has been caused by human activity over the last two and a half centuries or so, leading to the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The crisis is in large part an unintended consequence of action across history that has led to the destruction of carbon sinks, increased carbon flows, and concentrated carbon stocks. Most of this conduct is beyond the legitimate reach of international criminal law, not least because the relevant people are dead. Most but not all, she says. I have proposed that the international criminal law should be expanded to include a new criminal offense that I call postericide. It is committed by intentional or reckless conduct fit to bring about the extinction of humanity. Postericide is committed when humanity is put at risk of extinction by conduct performed either with the intention of making humanity go extinct or with the knowledge that the conduct is fit to have this effect. When a person knows that their conduct will impose an impermissible risk on another and acts anyway, they are reckless. It is in the domain of reckless conduct, making climate change worse, that we should look for postericidal conduct. No one person's emissions are fit to bring about human extinction as a result of climate impacts. The many private jets and oil wells that they own can do so, however, but individual people in their roles as political and corporate leaders can exert extensive control over how much worse climate change becomes as a result of their executive action. A country's president can withdraw an entire state from the global agreement on mitigation. That's a direct shot at President Trump, by the way, who did withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. My guess is this professor has President Trump is the first person to be charged with postericide. She continues, a chief executive officer can authorize the withholding of information about the progress and impacts of climate change because it threatens the corporation's bottom line. Individuals often have control over conduct that they do not perform themselves. For example, by giving direct orders to subordinates or by virtue of the special relationship in which they stand to others, whose conduct causes harm. This means that we can assign vicarious liability to individuals of power, authority, and influence within groups that, as collectives, worsen climate change in ways fit to make humanity go extinct. Just as international criminal law holds military leaders accountable for genocide committed by their troops, 
it should hold political and economic leaders to account for postericide committed under their authority. These leaders should go to trial at the ICC and be held to account at the bar of human communities' fundamental shared values. Who should be prosecuted for postericide? Listen carefully. We could start by examining the established international network of well-funded organizations devoted to organized criminal denial. For more on this subject, read Text Mining, the Signals of Climate Change Doubt in the journal Global Environmental Change, volume 36, January 2016. The epicenter of this activity is in the United States. Well, of course it's in the United States, Professor. We still have liberty-minded people that live here that can see through the phony science of the IPCC and through your crackpot schemes to criminalize all skeptics of your phony science. She continues, a set of conservative think tanks has deliberately deceived the public and policymakers about the realities of climate change. Their ideologically driven climate denial has been heavily funded by the fossil fuel industry, which include, for example, Coke Industries and ExxonMobil. This climate denial has had a significant impact on public opinion and has impeded legislation to tackle climate change. Her paper goes on. I can't read anymore. But I do want to declare, as a climate skeptic, I take no money from big oil or anybody else. The typical charge made by these climate fanatics is it's always big oil is giving money to those who are saying things that cross up with their own climate science produced by the IPCC, which is not a scientific body, by the way. It's a political body at the United Nations. So, Professor, I'm sad to say your ideas may gain traction in the IPCC. Your ideas might gain traction at the United Nations. But don't come to America with these kind of ideas. I dare say if you or the UN set one foot with intent to arrest anybody in our country for this so-called climate denial business, you will find yourself in a huge battle. It just simply is not going to happen in America anytime soon. Well, I'm Patrick Wood for Technocracy News and Trends. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.